Section 22 of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Gabrielle Dickinson. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. Great Debtors. What would life be without arithmetic but a scene of horrors? You are going to Boulogne, the city of debts, peopled by men who never understood arithmetic. Sidney Smith. When we owe and we do not pay, it is if we don't owe. Ariane Jose. Of what a hideous progeny is debt the father, what lies, what meanness, what invasions of self-respect, what cares, what double-dealing. How in due season it will carve the frank, open face into wrinkles. How like a knife it will stab the hot heart. Douglas Gerald. The human species, according to the best theory I can form of it, is composed of two distinct races, the men who borrow and the men who lend. To these two original diversities may be reduced all those impertinent classifications of Gothic and Celtic tribes, white men, black men, red men, and such like. Charles Lamb. People do not know what troubles they are brewing for themselves when they run into debt. It does not matter for what the debt is incurred. It hangs like a millstone round a man's neck until he is relieved of it. It presses like a nightmare upon him. It hinders the well-being of his family. It destroys the happiness in his household. Even those who are in the regular receipt of large incomes feel crippled, often for years, by the incubus of debt. Weighed down by this, what can a man do to save, to economize with a view to the future of his wife and children? A man in debt is disabled from insuring his life, from insuring his house and goods, from putting money in the bank, from buying a house or a freehold. All his surplus gains must go towards the payment of his debt. Even men of enormous property, great lords with vast landed estates, often feel themselves oppressed and made miserable by loads of debt, they or their forefathers having contracted extravagant habits, a taste for gambling, horse racing, or expensive living, borrow money on their estates, and the burden of debt remains, not perhaps in the case of strictly entailed estates, for the aristocracy have contrived so that their debts shall be wiped out at their death, and they can thus gratify their spendthrift taste at the expense of the public. The estates going comparatively unburdened to the entailed heir, but comparatively few are in the position of privileged classes. In the case of the majority, the debts are inherited with the estates, and often the debts are more than the estates are worth. Thus it happens that a large part of the lands of England are at this moment the property of mortgagees and moneylenders. The greatest men have been in debt. It has even been alleged that greatness and debt have a certain relation to each other. Great men have great debts. They are trusted. So have great nations. They are respectable and have credit. Spiritless men have no debts. Neither have spiritless nations. Nobody will trust them. Men as well as nations in debt secure a widely extended interest. Their names are written in many books, and many are the conjectures formed as to whether they will pay or not. Man who has no debts slips the world comparatively unnoticed, while he who is in everybody's books has all the eyes fixed upon him. His health is inquired after with interest, and if he goes into foreign countries, his return is anxiously looked for. The creditor is usually depicted as the severe man with a hard visage, while the debtor is an open-handed, generous man, 
ready to help and entertain everybody. He is the object of general sympathy. When Goldsmith was done for his milk score and arrested for the rent of his apartments, who would think of pitying the milkwoman or the landlady? It is the man in debt who is the prominent feature of the piece, and all our sympathy is reserved for him. What were you? asked Pantagruel of Panurge. Without your debts, God preserve me from ever being without them. Do you think there is anything divine in lending or in crediting others? No. To owe is the true heroic virtue. Yet whatever may be said in praise of debt, it has unquestionably a very seedy side. The man in debt is driven to resort to many sorry expedients to live. He is the victim of duns and sheriff's officers. Few can treat them with the indifference that Sheridan did, who put them into livery to wait upon his guests. The debtor starts and grows pale at every knock at his door. His friends grow cool, and his relatives shun him. He is ashamed to go abroad, and has no comfort at home. He becomes crabbed, morose, and querulous, losing all pleasure in life. He wants the passport to enjoyment and respect, money. He only has his debts, and these make him suspected, despised, and snubbed. He lives in the slough of despond. He feels degraded in others' eyes, as well as in his own. He must submit to impertinent demands, which he can only put off by sham excuses. He has ceased to be his own master, and has lost the independent bearing of a man. He seeks to excite pity, and pleads for time. A sharp attorney pounces on him, and suddenly he feels himself in the vulture's grip. He tries a friend or a relative, but all that he obtains is a civil leer and a cool repulse. He tries a money-lender, and, if he succeeds, he is only out of the frying-pan into the fire. It is easy to see what the end will be, a life of mean shifts and expedients, perhaps ending in the goal or the workhouse. Can a man keep out of debt? Is there a possibility of avoiding the moral degradation which accompanies it? Could not debt be dispensed with altogether, and man's independence preserved secure? Is there only one way of doing this, by living within the means? Unhappily, this is too little the practice in modern times. We incur debt, trusting to the future for the opportunity of defraying it. We cannot resist the temptation to spend money. One will have fine furniture and live in a high-rented house. Another will have wines and a box at the opera. A third must give dinners and music parties. All good things in their way, but not to be indulged in if they cannot be paid for. Is it not a shabby thing to pretend to give dinners if the real parties who provide them are the butcher, the poulterer, and the wine merchant, whom you are in debt to and cannot pay? A man has no business to live in a style which his income cannot support, or to mortgage his earnings of next week or of next year, in order to live luxuriously to-day. The whole system of debt, by means of which we forestall and anticipate the future, is wrong. They are almost as much to blame who give the credit, and encourage customers to take credit, as those are who incur debts. A man knows what his actual position is. If he pays his way as he goes, he can keep within his means, and so apportion his expenditure as to reserve a fund of savings against a time of need. He is always balanced up, and if he buys nothing but what he pays for in cash, he cannot fail to be on the credit side of his household accounts at the year's end. But once let him commence the practice of running up bills, one at the tailor's, another at the dressmaker's and milliner's, another at the butcher's, another at the grocer's, and so on. And he never knows how he stands. He is deceived into debt. The road is made smooth and pleasant for him. Things flow into the house. 
for which he does not seem to pay, but they are all set down against him, and at the year's end, when the bills come in, he is ready to lift up his hands in dismay, when he finds that the sweet of the honey will not repay for the smart of the sting. It is the same as respects the poorer classes. Not many years since, Parliament passed a law facilitating the establishment of small loan societies, for the purpose of helping small tradesmen and poor people generally to raise money on an emergency. The law was at once pounced upon by the numerous race of grovels, as a means of putting money in their purse. They gave the working classes facilities for running into debt, and for mortgaging their future industry. A few men, desirous of making money, would form themselves into a loan club, and offer sums of money ostensibly at five per cent interest, repayable in weekly installments. The laboring people eagerly availed themselves of the facility for getting into debt. One wanted money for a spree, another wanted money for a suit of clothes, a third for an eight-day clock, and so on. And instead of saving the money beforehand, they preferred getting the money from the club, keeping themselves in difficulties and poverty until the debt was paid off. Such a practice is worse than living from hand to mouth. It is a living upon one's own vitals. It is easy to understand how the partners in the loan club made money. Suppose that they advanced ten pounds for three months at five per cent. It is repayable in weekly installments at ten shillings a week, the repayments commencing the very first week after the advance has been made. But though ten shillings are repaid weekly until the debt is wiped off, interest at five per cent is charged upon the whole amount until the last installment is paid off, so that, though the nominal interest is five per cent, it goes on increasing until, during the last week, it reaches the enormous rate of one hundred per cent. This is what is called eating the calf in the cow's belly. Men of genius are equally facile in running into debt. Genius has no necessary connection with prudence or self-restraint, nor does it exercise any influence over the common rules of arithmetic, which are rigid and inflexible. Men of genius are often superior to what Bacon calls the wisdom of business. Yet Bacon himself did not follow his own advice, but was ruined by his improvidence. He was in straits and difficulties when a youth, and in still greater straits and difficulties when a man. His life was splendid, but his excessive expenditure involved him in debts which created a perpetual craving for money. One day, in passing out to his antechambers, where his followers waited for his appearance, he said, "'Be seated, my masters. Your rise has been my fall.' To supply his wants, Bacon took bribes, and was thereupon beset by his enemies, convicted, degraded, and ruined." Even men with a special genius for finance on a grand scale may completely break down in the management of their own private affairs. Pitt managed the national finances during a period of unexampled difficulty, yet was himself always plunged into debt. Lord Carrington, the ex-banker, once or twice, at Mr. Pitt's request, examined his household accounts, and found the quantity of butcher's meat charged in the bills was one hundred weight a week. The charge for servants' wages, board wages, living, and household bills exceeded £2,300 a year. At Pitt's death, the nation voted £40,000 to satisfy the demands of his creditors. Yet his income had never been less than £6,000 a year, and at one time, with the wardenship of Sinkports, it was nearly £4,000 a year more. Macaulay truly says that the character of Pitt would have stood higher if, with the disinterestedness of Pericles and De Witt, he had united their dignified frugality. 
but pitt by no means stood alone lord melville was as unthrifty in the management of his own affairs as he was of the money of the public fox was an enormous ower his financial maxim being that a man need never want money if he was willing to pay enough for it fox called to the outer room at almack's where he borrowed on occasions from jew-lenders at exorbitant premiums his jerusalem chamber passion for play was his great vice and at a very early age it involved him in debt to an enormous amount it is stated by gibbon that on one occasion fox sat playing at hazard for twenty hours in succession losing eleven thousand pounds but deep play was the vice of high life in those days and cheating was not unknown selwyn alluding to fox's losses at play called him charles the martyr sheridan was the hero of debt he lived on it though he received large sums of money in one way or another no one knew what became of it for he paid nobody it seemed to melt away in his hands like snow in summer he spent his first wife's fortune of one thousand six hundred pounds in a six weeks jaunt to bath necessity drove him to literature and perhaps to the stimulus of poverty we owe the rivals and the dramas which succeeded it with his second wife he obtained a fortune of five thousand pounds and with fifteen thousand pounds which he realized by the sale of drury lane shares he bought an estate in surrey from which he was driven by debt and duns the remainder of his life was a series of shifts sometimes brilliant but oftener degrading to raise money and evade creditors taylor of the opera house used to say that if he took off his hat to sheridan in the street it would cost him fifty pounds but if he stopped to speak to him it would cost a hundred one of sheridan's creditors came for his money on horseback that is a nice mare said sheridan do you think so yes indeed yes indeed how does she trot the creditor flattered told him he should see and immediately put the mare at full trotting pace on which sheridan took the opportunity of trotting round the nearest corner his duns would come in numbers each morning to catch him before he went out they were shown into rooms on each side of the entrance hall when sheridan had breakfasted he would come down and ask are those doors all shut john and on being assured that they were he marched out deliberately between them he was in debt all round to his milkman his grocer his baker and his butcher sometimes mrs sheridan would be kept waiting for an hour or more while the servants were beating up the neighborhood for coffee butter eggs and rolls while sheridan was paymaster of the navy a butcher one day brought a leg of mutton to the kitchen the cook took it and clapped it in the pot to boil and went upstairs for the money but not returning the butcher coolly removed the pot lid took out the mutton and walked away with it in his tray yet while living in these straits sheridan when invited with his son into the country usually went in two chases and four he in one and his son tom following the other the end of all was very sad for some weeks before his death he was nearly destitute of the means of substance. His noble and royal friends had entirely deserted him. Executions for debt were in his house, and he passed his last days in the custody of sheriff's officers, who abstained from conveying him to prison merely because they were assured that to remove him would cause his immediate death. The Cardinal de Retz sold off everything to pay his debts, but he did not recover his liberty. He described the perpetual anguish of the debtor, he even preferred confinement in the castle of Vicennes to being exposed to the annoyances of his creditors. Mirabeau's life was one of perpetual debt, for he was a dreadful spendthrift. 
the only mode by which his father could keep him out of scrapes, was by obtaining a lettre de cachette, and having him safely imprisoned. Though Mirabel wielded the powers of the state, when he died he was so poor, or had been so extravagant, that he was still indebted to the tailor for his wedding suit. The Martine ran through half a dozen fortunes, and at the end of his life was, quote, sending round the hat, end quote. The Martine boldly proclaimed that he hated arithmetic, quote, that negative of every noble thought, end quote. He was accordingly driven by very shabby shifts to live. The Cours de Literature alone brought him in 200,000 francs a year, yet the money ran through his hands like a quicksilver. His debts are said to have amounted to three millions of francs. Yet his style of living remained unchanged. One of his enthusiastic admirers, having stinted himself in subscribing towards the repurchase of the Lamartine estates, went into a fishmonger's one day to purchase a piece of turbot. It was too dear for his means. A distinguished-looking personage entered, paused for a moment, before the turbot, and without questioning the price, ordered the fish to be sent to his house. It was M. de Lamartine. Webster, the American statesman, was afflicted with impecuniosity, arising from his carelessness about money matters, as well as from his extravagance. If we are to believe Theodore Parker, Webster, like Bacon, took bribes. Quote, he contracted debts and did not settle. Borrowed and yielded, not again. Private money sometimes clove to his hands. A senator of the United States, he was pensioned by the manufacturers of Boston. His later speeches smelled of bribes. End quote. Monroe and Jefferson were always in want of money, and often in debt, though they were both honest men. The life which public men lead nowadays is often an incentive to excessive expenditure. They may be men of moderate means, they may even be poor, but not many of them, moving in general society, have the moral courage to seem to be so. To maintain their social position, they think it necessary to live as others do. They are thus drawn into the vortex of debt, and into all the troubles, annoyances, shabby shifts, and dishonesties which debt involves. Men of science are, for the most part, exempt from the necessity of shining in society, and hence they furnish but a small number of instances of illustrious debtors. Many of them have been poor, but they have usually lived within their means. Kepler's life was indeed a struggle with poverty and debt, arising principally from the circumstances of his salary. As principal mathematician to the Emperor of Germany, having been always in arrear, this drove him to casting nativities in order to earn a living. I pass my time, he once wrote, in begging at the doors of crown treasurers. At his death he left only twenty-two crowns, the dress he wore, two shirts, a few books, and many manuscripts. Leibniz left behind him a large amount of debt, but this may have been caused by the fact that he was a politician as well as a philosopher, and had frequent occasion to visit foreign courts and to mix on equal terms with the society of the great. Spinoza was poor in means, yet inasmuch as what he earned by polishing glasses for the opticians was enough to supply his wants. He incurred no debts. He refused a professorship and refused a pension, preferring to live and die independent. 
Dalton had a philosophical disregard for money. When his fellow townsmen at Manchester once proposed to provide him with an independence, that he might devote the rest of his life to scientific investigation, he declined the offer, saying that teaching was a kind of recreation to him, and that if richer he would probably not spend more time in his investigations than he was accustomed to do. Faraday's was another instance of moderate means and noble independence. Lagrange was accustomed to attribute his fame and happiness to the poverty of his father, the astronomer royal of Turin. Quote, Had I been rich, he said, probably I should not have become a mathematician. The greatest debtor connected with science was John Hunter, who expended all his available means, and they were wholly earned by himself, in accumulating the splendid collection now known as the Hunterian Museum. All that he could collect in fees went to purchase new objects for preparation and dissection. Or upon carpenters and bricklayers' work for the erection of his gallery. Though his family were left in strained circumstances at his death, the sale of the collection to the nation for fifteen thousand pounds enabled all his debts to be paid, and at the same time left an enduring monument to his fame. Great artists have nearly all struggled into celebrity through poverty, and some have never entirely emerged from it. This, however, has been mainly because of their improvidence. Jan Steen was always in distress, arising principally from the habit he had acquired of drinking his own beer, for he was first a brewer, and afterwards a tavern-keeper. He drank and painted alternately, sometimes transferring the drinking scenes of which he had been a witness to the canvas, even while himself in a state of intoxication. He died in debt, after which his pictures rose in value. Until now they are worth their weight in gold. Notwithstanding the large income of Van Dyck, his style of living was so splendid and costly as to involve him in heavy debt. To repair his fortunes, he studied alchemy for a time, in the hope of discovering the Philosopher's Stone but towards the end of his life he was so enabled to retrieve his position and to leave a comfortable competency to his widow. Rembrandt, on the other hand, involved himself in debt through his love of art. He was an insatiable collector of drawings, armor, and articles of virtue, and thus became involved in such difficulties that he was declared a bankrupt. His property remained under legal control for thirteen years, until his death. The great Italian artists were, for the most part, temperate and moderate men, and lived within their means. Hayden, in his autobiography, says, Raphael, Michelangelo, Zuxis, Apelles, Rubens, Reynolds, Titan, were rich and happy. Why? Because with their genius they combined practical prudence. Hayden himself was an instance of the contrary practice. His life was a prolonged struggle with difficulty and debt. He was no sooner free from one obligation than he was involved in another. His mock election was painted in the King's Bench prison while he lay there for debt. There is a strange entry in his journal. Quote, I borrowed ten pounds today of my butterman, Webb, an old pupil of mine, recommended to me by Sir George Beaumont twenty-four years ago, but who wisely, after drawing hands, set up a butter-shop, and was enabled to send his old master ten pounds in his necessity. End quote. 
Hayden's autobiography is full of his contest with lawyers and sheriff's officers. Creditors dogged and dunned him at every step. Lazarus's head, he writes, was painted just after an arrest. Eucles was finished from a man in possession. The beautiful face in Xenophon in the afternoon, after a morning spent in begging mercy of lawyers. And Cassandra's head was finished in agony not to be described, and her hand completed after a broker's man in possession, in an execution put in for taxes. Cowper used to say that he never knew a poet who was not thriftless, and he included himself. Notwithstanding his quiet, retired life, he was constantly outrunning the constable. By the help of good management, he once wrote, and a clear notion of economical matters, I contrived in three months to spend the income of a twelfth month. But though the number of thriftless poets may be great, it must not be forgotten that Shakespeare, who stands at the head of the list, was a prudent man. He economized his means, and left his family in comfort. His contemporaries were, however, for the most part, indebted men. Ben Jonson was often embarrassed, and always poor, borrowing twenty shillings at a time from Henslow, though he rarely denied himself another jolly night at the Mermaid. Masinger was often so reduced in circumstances as not to be able to pay his score at the same tavern. Green, Peel, and Marlowe lived lives in dissipation and died in poverty. Marlowe was killed in a drunken brawl. When Green was on his deathbed, dying of the disease which his excesses had caused, he was haunted by the debt of ten pounds, which he owed to the shoemaker who had lodged him. He then warned his friend Peel to amend his ways, but Peel, like him, died in distress and debt. One of the last letters he wrote being an imploring letter to Burleigh, asking for relief. Long sickness, said he, having so enfeebled me as maketh bashfulness almost impudency. Spencer died forsaken and in want. Ben Jonson says of him that he died for lack of bread in King Street, and refused twenty broad pieces sent to him by my lord of Essex, adding, he was sorry he had no time to spend them. Of later poets and literary men, Milton died in obscurity, though not in debt. Lovelace died in a cellar. Butler, the author of Hudibras, died of starvation in Rose Alley, the same place in which Dryden was beaten by hired ruffians. Otway was hunted by bailiffs to his last hiding-place on Tower Hill. His last act was to beg a shilling of a gentleman, who gave him a guinea, and buying a loaf to appease his hunger. He choked at the first mouthful. Witcherly lay seven years in gold for debt, but lived to die in his bed at nearly eighty. Fielding's extravagance and dissipation in early life involved him in difficulties which he never entirely shook off, and his death was embittered by the poverty in which he left his widow and child in a foreign land. End of section 22